few years ago, I was reading Eric Larson's The Splendid and the Vile. It's an excellent story that tells basically the two perspectives of the Blitz over Britain in 1940s. It tells the side of the Germans, but it also tells the side of the British. And one of the focal points is, of course, Winston Churchill. Now, I'm a huge Winston Churchill fan. I have been for many, many years. And one of the reasons why is what I saw in this book. Here's this man who, by all accounts, is not a good leader. Um, lost his job in World War I because of a massive, cat catastrophic failure of leadership. Gallipoli. If you don't know anything about Gallipoli, just know that basically the British were lucky to get away with anybody in World War I. Um, it was bad. And Churchill was essentially written off. But he's fought his way back. And in the 1930s, he becomes one of the few who speak out and say, we need to be aware of this madman from Austria who's taken over Germany. No one wants to listen, apparently. And he seems to be calling into an echo chamber, which, which to be fair, he, he kind of has earned it. I mean, he made some really bad calls before, but in this instance, Churchill is beyond right. Uh, Churchill is absolutely and completely on the money. And he's in sharp contrast to the other leader, um, Neville Chamberlain, who has been running England and really kind of has this attitude of, we just need to try to keep the peace. You know, we need to just try to, you know, not really ruffle any feathers. And especially, you know, he is on record, uh, Churchill, or sorry, Chamberlain is on record as saying, you know, I, I believe Hitler is a trustworthy man. Well, that one really did not stand up the test of time. Eventually, Chamberlain is, is removed from office and Churchill ascends and becomes the prime minister. And as we know, there's several different things that occur pretty quickly after he takes office, one of them being Dunkirk, the, the trapping of all of Britain's army on uh, the shores there and, and the miraculous, some might say, escape that they have. But it's the Blitz that Churchill, I think, might have his finest moment. Because here's this leader, and, and this this portly older guy he smokes a cigar. He has some strange eccentricities. But Winston Churchill does one thing that I think sets him apart as a leader for all time. Flaws, eccentricities, weird little habits that he does. Whatever you think, Winston Churchill, when his city is being bombed, he's right there. Now, people are telling him, go to safety, go to the country, but Churchill won't have anything of it. He he wants to be there. Now, part of it, to be fair, if you read Larson's book, it, he definitely talks about the idea that some of it is this sort of childlike wonder that Churchill has of watching the book. But a larger part of it is that Churchill understands one of the fundamental aspects of leadership that I think far too often we're missing today. Churchill understands that a leader needs to be there. A leader, a leader needs to be seen. And a leader doesn't always have to open their mouth to do what's right. Today, we're going to have a little chat with Chad about where is leadership. Welcome to the Chad Lehrman AuthorCast.
in a time frame that will remain nameless for numerous reasons, had a situation occur where there was an incredibly volatile and dangerous situation. And I saw two different types of leadership in this moment. In the chaos and the the hecticness of the moment, I saw one leader who was, while frantic and and um, you know bouncing from one thing to another, maybe a little bit of misinformation slipping out here and there. This leader was visible. I could see this leader. I could I could know that they were there, and I know that they were at least doing whatever it was that they could to solve the problem. But there was another leader, a leader that I couldn't see. A leader that not only could I not see in the moment, but in the the hours and even days that followed when there was chance to to look at the situation and go back, this leader was nowhere to be seen. Not even an email, not even a, a comment, nothing. I've been thinking a lot about that situation because you see, I believe that leaders, as I said before, need to be visible. I think that there are times that leaders need to speak to the needs of the people. And I think that there are times where a leader needs to simply be present and silent as well. I watch a lot of leadership type things, not not really like how to be a leader. I watch actual leaders. I, I watch people who have the title, who have the elected position, who have the the authority. And I watch them because in all honesty, um, I like to study people. Like that is something that I do. I, I studied psychology in college, and um, it just never really went away. I, I really enjoy trying to understand what motivates people and what makes them do what they do. And I think part of that is is that I I also want to understand how people work, but also I want to understand how people are successful. And leaders are, I think, by nature in our society, people that we think are successful. They've achieved. They've done well at one position and they've earned responsibilities. They've earned opportunities. They've earned positions that allow them to be elevated in their corporation, in their institution, in society. And so I I feel that if we want to understand success, we need to look at our leaders. And one of the really big and concerning things that I've noticed over the last few decades of my adult life and watching leaders and trying to understand them is that, unfortunately, it seems that a lot of leaders get to their position not really because they've earned it, but because they were in the right place at the right time or they knew the right people. Now, there's nothing wrong with the leader who's in the right place at the right time. For instance, any war movie or you know great war story where, where there's something really based on truth, you find leaders who emerge in the moment. There, there are those who have been given that position, and, and in that, that heat of battle, they abdicate that responsibility, either because they simply quit or they freeze. And it's in those moments that somebody else steps in and somebody else demonstrates the true quality of leadership. So that's right time, right place type leadership. And and that's a good thing. So there's nothing against that. But there are also people who just happen to become leaders because it's quote unquote, their turn. I remember a number of years ago, um, I believe this was in the 2012 election uh, when Obama was running for his reelection and the the Republicans were trying to find out who to run against him. And I remember uh, reading an article or seeing a, a newscast where they, they were talking about how it was Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney was going to be the guy. And, and they used the terminology. They said, well, the Republicans view it as it's his turn. 
You know, it, it's his turn to stand against Barack Obama. And I remember thinking that it was odd that they would choose Mitt Romney because one of the big arguments that Republicans had against Obama at that time was Obamacare, was the, the Affordable Care Act. They wanted to say that it was this huge government overstep and this like massive problem um, and, and government spending and government being involved in what it shouldn't be. And the guy they chose to run against Barack Obama and, and ostensibly against that sort of mentality was the guy who created the program that Obamacare was based on. You know, Mitt Romney had done the exact same program in Massachusetts when he was governor. And I, I remember thinking, so your whole reason for putting him up is that it's his turn when he's probably one of the worst people because he can't critique the biggest problem that Republicans have with him. It was struck by that. And, and I remember thinking that was an odd choice to say, well, it's your turn that <laughs> a man who might be president is getting there because it's his turn. That's leadership, isn't it? How many of you know somebody who gets a position because it's, well, it's, they, they put in their time, they put in their dues. It was their turn. Well, they, they didn't get the last one or two, so it, it's their turn. We're going to give it to them now. Do they really deserve it? Or do they just happen to be in the right place at the right time? Of course, I'm talking about positional leadership here. I'm talking about leadership that is is bestowed by someone else, by committee, by uh, higher-ups, by boards of directors. These kinds of leadership um, are necessary, but but really we're talking managerial leadership here. We're talking leaders, leader by appointment. What about those who demonstrate leadership by simply doing leadership? Another thing I remember once was a, a gentleman that I, I was when I was a minister, he was one of the best servants in our church. And, and he was always there. He was always willing to help. He was always, always willing to serve. And he was a leader. Uh, he'd been a military guy. His name was Larry Bandy. Um, and, and Larry had been a, a Lieutenant Colonel in the Marine Corps. And uh, man, he was gung-ho. <laughs> like there's no other way to put it. He still was, he'd been retired for a while, but he was still very gung-ho military. And, um, Man, he did the work. He, he was there for the kids. He was there for the adults. He was there for everything. And people began to talk about the need for him to be become a deacon in the church. Now, I, at this time, I was in, I was a Southern Baptist minister, and um, Southern Baptists, you know, you you your deacons are your your servant leaders in the church. And I remember him saying that that, and this was in a time when there were a lot of sort of stereotypes about deacons that well, that they didn't do anything. And, and I remember Larry saying. Why would I want to become a deacon so I can stop serving, so I can stop being a leader? He thought it was odd that people would want to give him a position of leadership that is known for not doing anything because he had done so much. And in that moment, I was, I was very proud of him for making that stance because he was essentially calling out people that, that don't really do much anymore. And, and to be fair, there were a lot of deacons who that was true. Um, there were a lot that that wasn't, that they were active and involved people. But I remember him saying that, and I remember it sticking in my head because he was very right about something, that, that if you have an attitude that leadership is something you get and you've arrived, then you misunderstand leadership. If you work really, really hard to achieve something, you get that leadership position and you think it's time to coast, then that's not leadership. That's pseudo-retirement. Well, the best leaders are leaders who don't stop. 
they, they continue to better themselves. They're highly reflective. They're not afraid to be critiqued or challenged. But I feel like in our politics and in our, whether it's local or national or state or whatever, I feel like in our hierarchies within our businesses and our corporations, our schools even, that the idea far too often is not welcoming of criticism, that leaders don't want to be told you're not okay or that you've done something wrong. I mean, in, in ministry that I've, I spent 11 years in ministry and I've spent now 11 to almost 12 years in education, the number of times that I've seen a leader bristle when someone says, hey, you know, I don't know that I agree with that. I, I, you know, I'm going to question that. It's shocking. You know, these very same people who are challenging us to be reflective and wanting, wanting us to, to constantly evaluate ourselves are, are very quick to shut down criticism of themselves. One of my favorite things in, in education to gripe about is the fact like standardized testing. And, and I don't know a single teacher who, who um, just overjoyed at the concept of that, of standardized testing. I don't know of anybody who loves it in education. Maybe there are some. Um, I haven't met them. But the point is this. When we give standardized tests, we as teachers are not allowed to look at the test. We're not allowed to um, see what's on the test. We're, we're supposed to move our eyes around the room, actively monitor. Um, if our eye lands on the test, we need to immediately look away. And anything that we do see, we must blank out and forget. Okay. And all of this is in the name of test security. And, and it comes down from uh, the state government of Texas. This is, this is how you do standardized testing. This is how you do the STAR test. And so we follow this rule. We follow this law. But here, here's the problem. If we can't see the test, how can we hold the test accountable? Now, it's important, I think, that the test should be held accountable because the test is what is very much used to hold education accountable in Texas. The leaders in Texas have determined that the best way to measure how good a teacher is, is this one test given one day a year to select students based upon their age and classes. And no educator can see the test beforehand because they might, you know, teach to it. And no teacher can see the test while it's being given because, you know, they may have an idea of what's going on or, or break test security. And no teacher, if they happen to see something wrong on the test, could dare speak up and say anything about it. Now, once the test is released, usually it's by, you know, the end of the year or so, and you get a copy of the test, you see it, um, then you can talk about it and you can see what it is. But how do we know it's the right test? We didn't see it. You know, we didn't get to observe what was happening. And I bring that up because, again, here's a situation where there's leadership, the state leadership of Texas, the State Board of Education, the testing companies who write these expensive billions of dollars worth of tests they all get to say what they want, do what they want, behave what they want, but there's no accountability for them. But if we mess up even a little bit as an educator, they drop the guillotine of lose your license to teach because you broke test security. There's an imbalance in accountability. And I don't think that it's true leadership if there's any sort of imbalance in that accountability. If any leader is above reproach, and I don't mean like they're good, they've done nothing wrong. I mean they're above the ability to be approached about being reproached. 
if they're not willing to hear critiques, if they're not even opening the door to it, they're not a leader. They're a dictator. I also feel like that far too often our leaders don't speak up when they need to and say too much when they should remain silent. If you've watched politics at all for this last year, um, and I, I just want to say, I'm not getting into whether one side is right or the other. Um, there've been a lot of impeachments. There've been a lot of um, censure or attempts to remove people from office in the last year. And by the way, that's been on both sides of the aisle. Um, there have been Republicans that uh, have been accused of fraud in the House, uh, George Santos uh, being the most recent example of that. Um, he was brought up and he was going to to be removed from his position, but uh, none of the people voted to remove him um, based upon the fact that he hasn't been convicted of fraud yet. Uh, I can't remember her first name, Rashida Tlaib, I believe, I think is her name, was recently censured, uh, or was she was censured, censured, uh, but they had tried to remove her from office based on the fact that she was very pro-Palestine. Uh, I think even pro-Hamas was the accusation. Um, and that she was essentially going against the, the ethics of this country. And there was an attempt to remove her. In both situations, they were safe from being removed because members of their own party refused to vote against them. Um, and even went so far as to say, it doesn't matter what they did. They're my party. I'm not voting against them. I love teaching AP U.S. history, and I love teaching certain aspects of it. I'll, I'll be really honest. There's some of it that, that is dry. I'm, I'm a, I'm much prefer AP World. I, I think it's a much more interesting subject. I, I, I apologize to my AP students for saying that I think AP World is more interesting. It just is. I love the different perspectives. There's so much more going on, um, and there's so many. I, I like the different perspectives. I like seeing different parts of the world. But but in AP Push, one of my favorite things to have taught is George Washington. I, I love um, the aspect of this man. Now, again, any leader, I have learned this, I teach my students this, any leader in the last 200 years, if you dig enough, you're going to find problems with them. Like they're going to do some pretty horrendous things. Some of it is because at the time, what they were doing that, that everybody today says is wrong wasn't outside of the norm. Um, sometimes they're just terrible people. Okay, they did horrible things, and, and and you know there wasn't paparazzi or you know social media or people with iPhones snapping pictures of them doing that thing to put it out there. Um, had there been, maybe we'd have a very different opinion of George Washington. But I I like him. I, I love some of the things that he set in motion as president. I love the fact that he said, you know what, two turns is enough for me. I'm done. I don't want to be your king. Then he walked away. That that to me says integrity. People wanted him. They wanted him there forever. He was beloved. He was appreciated in his time. And you don't know how hard that is to be appreciated in your time. You know, they're very, when was the last time you had a majority of Americans wanting a president to keep going? You know, I mean, most of them are like, okay, you know, eight years, that's, that's, that's more than enough of you. You can go away now. But Washington, they wanted more. And Washington said, no, I'm walking away. And I respect that. But Washington, when he walked away, said a couple things. He said, one, stop getting involved in foreign affairs. Don't, or actually, don't stop. Don't get started getting involved in foreign affairs. If you get tied to somebody else, to some other country, you're going to get involved in all their stuff. And eventually, you're going to be drug into something that you have nothing to do with. You know what? He's right. We did. Now, 
I'm not saying that we should never get involved. And I definitely think that the world is a different place than it was back then um, in the late 1700s. But we have gotten involved in things that we probably shouldn't have gotten involved in. Vietnam. Um, but that aside, and, and you know, I could cough several more names, but I'm not going to. Um, the point is this. When Washington looked at America and he saw what was coming, he told him, he said, aside from not getting involved in foreign affairs, you need to not have political parties because people will become more content and more focused on party politics than they are on what's good for America. Flash forward to today and people vote because they vote yes, because the person's letter behind their name matches theirs or they vote no because it doesn't match theirs. No other reason. How many good policies, how many good laws have died on the vine because of partisan politics? Leaders who will take an issue with something and argue with it and, and vilify it and demonize it simply because the other team came up with it. How often are we seeing politicians on TV saying nothing except attacks? Again, not being political here, but in 2016, I was still a debate coach and debate teacher. And um, I remember watching one of the Trump-Clinton debates and had a great teachable moment with my students. We, we watched 10 minutes of the debate uh, because it's important for us to understand how political debates work. And, and that was part of the teaks that we had to cover. And so we watched 10 minutes of the debate. And at the end of that 10 minutes, I asked the students to tell me one policy that was mentioned in 10 minutes of debate. Just one idea, one thing that they wanted to do. They couldn't name a thing. But if I asked them how many zingers or one-liners or know, clickbait type things that they, they heard. How many um, sound bites could you snap out of that 10 minutes? Well, that was almost countless. And I realized that we don't want leaders, we want celebrities. We want somebody who, quote unquote, speaks the truth. One of my favorite lines from a recent movie is, is from the uh, sequel to Knives Out, um, Glass Onion. And in this, this particular scene, Benoit Blanc says to somebody, it's dangerous to mistake speaking with no thought for speaking the truth. There have been a lot of times lately where I've heard a politician say something and I've thought, you're saying this for attention. You're not saying this to better anybody. You're not saying this to challenge or to push back. You're saying it because you know you're going to get likes and you're going to get clicks and you're going to get retweets or re-exes, whatever they're called now. It's not healthy. It's not leadership. In many ways, I look at our politicians and, and it's like they're not there. I mean, they're there. They're busy. They're doing things. But are they doing anything that actually makes a difference? Are they doing anything that actually moves us forward? How many times have we stalled out or closed down the government in the last eight years? Because we can't agree. It's been interesting to watch how even Republicans have pushed back on their own guy, Tommy Tuberville, for withholding appointments to the military. How, how long the military went without allowing a raises or promotions to occur because he had an agenda. 
concerns me that we can say many, many things. Our leaders can say many, many things and still offer nothing. And so sometimes I think it's important that leaders are simply there and quiet. They're there in that moment when somebody needs you. And they don't give you a platitude. They don't say something that they think they should say. They're just there, present. They're seen. We need leaders like that. We need leaders who know when to speak and when they have nothing of benefit to offer. We need leaders who will look at their time and say, I've done enough. It's time to pass the baton. We need George Washingtons. We need them in politics. We need them in education. We need them in the corporate world. Because there is a disconnect in this country. There is a disconnect between many people. Ask any educator, does their state in Texas, let me clarify that. Ask any educator in Texas, does their state government support them? And they may say, well, a little bit here, a little bit there. But when push comes to shove, the state government of Texas has chosen not to support teachers. My mom is a retired teacher. She got the first raise, was finally voted on by the people, finally got to the people to vote. First raise for retired teachers in something like 20 to 25 years. It's not much, but it's a movement. Meanwhile, there's been no school funding bill provided in the state of Texas. Um, school is almost halfway over for this year. And the reason why it hasn't is because the governor of Texas doesn't want to fund schools unless he can get his pet project of school choice approved. And so they're entering into their fourth, that's right, fourth special session so that the governor will get school choice passed. But there's pushback. There are some people who are finally standing up and saying, some leaders, some elected officials are saying, no, the people don't want this. The people want to fund schools. I don't want to get too far into that. I'm planning on being uh, talking about this for the Didactic Cafe portion of the Chad Lehrman AuthorCast in a couple of weeks uh, when I think the session might be over by then. So maybe we'll have more to talk about. But I think it's important for us to know um, that there's a lot of posturing in our leaders. They know the right things to say. They know, they know how to talk about branding. They know how to talk about selling what's important. But I've learned to be very discerning when it comes to leadership. And I've learned not to put a lot of trust in leadership. Maybe that makes me cynical. Maybe that makes me somebody who's anti-authoritarian. I don't know. But I can tell you this. It's done me well in my life to not trust people. Quickly, anyway. Trust is earned. And simply because someone comes in with a great re recommendation or a great resume, who says all the right things in the right moments, in the beginning, doesn't mean that they're the right leader for the place. And especially if that leader has managed to climb the ladder because of a lot of right place, right time moments, or because, hey, it's who you know, or because they meet some arbitrary standard that people think they should. 
when leaders become celebrities, we shouldn't be surprised that our leaders act like spoiled brats. I used to think that leaders were the people who got things done. And I think that's true. But I also think that, that true leadership is also knowing when to sit back. Sometimes leaders get things done and sometimes leaders go, we need to stop and reflect. I also think it's important to note that leaders who seem intent on sliding their own will in alongside the will of the people, who seem intent upon getting their little pet projects done, getting their buddies in the right position, it's not leadership, it's cronyism. And unfortunately, cronyism is the way of politics, it is the way of business, and sometimes I think it's the way of education. Absolutely and unequivocally abhor corruption. I hated it for my entire life. Found a kindred, kindred spirit in figures like Theodore Roosevelt, who, who actively fought against corruption, who tried to root out uh, the problems in politics. By the way, I want to point this out. He actually tried to root those things out. He actually went against his own party on occasion because he saw corruption there. He didn't just talk about it. He didn't come up with a catchy phrase about how he was going to clean things up. He just did it. And one of my favorite stories is that Roosevelt, when he was police commissioner of New York City, would hop on his bicycle at night and he'd ride around. And he'd look for cops who weren't on their, their post where they were supposed to be, cops who were smoking when they shouldn't be, cops who were drinking when they shouldn't be, cops who were doing anything they shouldn't be. And he'd clear them out. He'd fire them on the spot. Because he knew that a police officer in New York City in the late 1800s was a leader. People looked to them. People needed to trust them. And if you can't trust your leader, if you can't believe what your leader says, and you can't count on your leader to be there when it matters, and you don't have a leader. You know, I once wanted to be a leader. I once thought I was a leader. I thought I had leadership qualities. And maybe some people think I do. Maybe, maybe I do lead in some ways, in my own ways. I don't know. I once wanted the position, though, the thing that came along with it. I don't know that I want the position anymore. If I am going to be a leader, if I am going to be somebody who people follow, I, I would prefer it be because I have character, because I have integrity, because I, I fight for people. I fight for what's right. I would rather be the kind of leader that is pursued for their expertise, their ability, for their passion, than to be the kind of person who pursues leadership for the fame, the glory, and the money. I've heard it said before that the most important quality a leader should possess is that they don't want to be a leader. I've also heard it said on a number of occasions, power corrupts. 
I think, I think maybe as a leader, we should be a little scared of power. We should be afraid to assume that position. Not because we don't know what we're doing or because we don't feel like we can do it. No, I think we should be afraid of the leadership position because if we're too good at it, maybe we're unwilling to let go of that power when the time comes. Unwilling to recognize when we've made mistakes. And therefore unwilling to admit when we've made mistakes. So yeah, I think a leader needs to be present. I think a leader needs to be seen. I think a leader needs to be able to speak truth and be real. And a leader needs to know when to keep their mouth shut. But I also think a leader needs to know when it's time to go away. And so, I know that it's time for me to say goodbye for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion about leadership. Where is it? Um, this has been Chad Lehrman for the Chad Lehrman AuthorCast, and you've just had some chats with Chad. Hope you have a great week, and we will see you next week for an Urban Legends Unmasked.